Hey there everyone, it's uh, A Squared here again, the atypical anaesthetist. And I thought for this episode we will do something less, something light and fluffy and inconsequential. Politics. So uh, with my special guest, we'll delve into that uh, minefield. Hi there everybody. It's A Squared here again, your atypical anaesthetist, uh, discussing topics that the usual brown doctor does not. And today, we thought we'd, uh, you know, chill out and have a, you know, kind of relaxed, you know, not as, I don't, we don't want a serious discussion, just want something which is light and fluffy. So politics came to mind. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, with me, I have with me a very special guest. He is part of the a, inf- a influential think tank, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Um, uh, Rashad uh, Ali. Um, Rashad, how are you this evening? I'm good. Not so bad. Not so bad. How are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. Um, just come off Enjoy a. Uh... Pardon. Enjoying the fine weather. Yes, I am enjoying the fine weather. It's uh, uh, it's it, it's nice that we've had more than two days of sun. I thought we'd finish seeing it all in May, in May, but it's nice to see that we are actually getting a bit more uh, sunshine. Um, how's lockdown treating you? Wonderfully, to be honest. It's a, it's a terrible feeling of guilt for enjoying it so much. <laughs> yes, I mean, uh, I've actually heard that from quite a few people, actually, that... Uh, you know, um, there's been unexpected benefits to this whole lockdown. Um, you, you know, catching up on hobbies, catching up with the family, um, reading books, etc., etc. Uh, but the reason, the, but the reason I've got you on today is because uh, I think uh, you're probably the, the most knowledgeable person I know about British politics. Now, that could be a sad indictment of my own friends, um, <laughs> or it could be a, a compliment, and I wish you do take it as a compliment. Um, so, could you tell us just a little bit about yourself, just so that our listeners know uh, who you are? Right, I guess I've been working as a, a researcher and advisor uh, for the Institute for Strategic Dialogue for a number of years now, I think maybe actually came off my LinkedIn for more than six years. Um, I think it's been a bit longer than that. And we look at a range of issues, primarily around polarisation and extremism, Um, and then the peripheries of those things, which are hate crime, terrorism, and we try to understand what are the things that create, cause, exacerbate those things, and then what can be done to try and tackle some of the specific things, whether it's misinformation, slash disinformation, whether it's propaganda that's been utilised by states or um, non-state actors, or whether it's uh, recruitment uh, being undertaken by extremists slash terrorists in online fora and offline in, in real time. And that involves a range of I guess, engagements at a policy level, uh, advice at a practical level for institutions, uh, creating and developing uh, actual uh, interventions, solutions, which include educational solutions, engagement, uh, campaigning, um, and drawing out specifically what policy should look like. Um, So suggesting legislative and institutional developments and changes at a broad level, whether that's nationally, uh, what was at a Europe-wide level, um, or even globally at uh, international institutions and large players in terms of uh, global, globally influential states. Okay. How um, are you affiliated particularly to any political party or any kind of ideology? 
I'm not to either, actually. So I, I'm not affiliated to a particular political party. Um, and I'm not specifically uh, ideologically aligned. Okay. Uh, probably the best way to describe myself. Okay, so... Doesn't mean I have very strong political views. Okay, so uh, how, how would you categorise your political views then? Um, I guess... I guess it depends who you speak to. I mean, one of the things today about where the, the absence of a clearly defined centre ground is people put that pin of where the centre is at different places on the spectrum. Um, so some would think of that as being, um, I guess, they would see my, my international politics as being quite hawkish or strong or right of centre or, or right wing even. Some may see it as internationalist and very left. Um, others may look at my economic views and see it as fairly centre-left, or some may see it as really extreme extreme social social democracy, depending on where you are in the world or where you are in the political spectrum. Yeah. Um, I mean, and on every other issue, I guess, is very issue by issue, so it's not really a particular political, like politically ideological perspective, if that makes sense. So, would you say that you are more of a pragmatist then? Um, no, I, I think pragmatist is, again, it's a particular political ethos about not having principles but being pragmatic. I think it's still important to have a set of principles, um, whether that's a small h human rights um, as a foundation or whether that's... Um, having a set of values about the importance of uh, standing against uh, totalitarianism and tyranny, or whether that's in appreciating and understanding what it means to live within society in a social contract. I think those types of values are important. They are as close to universal ideals as we have. Um, and they, some of them obviously are going to have a, a, a huge spectrum and some are less of a spectrum, leeway as how people interpret them and implement them. But I think pragmatism itself, whilst being realistic and understanding that we, we need to operate within a given practical set, setting, um, can also be quite ideological. Maybe if people you probably use the word realism instead of it. Mm, because, I mean, f from what you're saying, you obviously have a set of values, a set of values that you um, adhere to, yet you're also saying that you're not ideological. Um, how, how how do you uh, marry those two? Uh, because normally they go to, okay, maybe this is an overgeneralization and you can educate me, but they normally kind of seem to go together, you know. Um, for example, I was working with some colleagues and uh, in a bit of downtime in between cases we were looking at this uh, website the political compass you know um trying to figure out where we all were on the political compass um with right left authoritarian libertarian etc etc so isn't it uh, isn't uh, so often as i said maybe i'm over generalizing values often do go within ideology you have very strong values but you're saying you're not ideological so i think ideology is quite specific isn't it usually how it's used in political terms um people can be fairly ideological if they describe themselves as being uh i guess socialist as an example Mm -hmm. It's a very specific set of ideas. They're usually um, a very specific vision of what the ideal society is going to be like. And a set of beliefs about how to operate as a society and bring them about. Um, whether that's how we control the economy, how what we believe about the rights of ownership, um, or restricting said rights, and what we believe the role of government is in a prescriptive way. Um, and I, I don't think I have a set of strong beliefs about any of those things. Okay. I think there's a massive spectrum of kind of plausible, acceptable, uh, practical um, pra policies and approaches that are 
equally as viable in different circumstances and situations. Okay, so, so I'm, I, I, again, I'm, I'm, so, I'm still trying to marry this up with your, you know, very strongly held values. Um, and But I, I'm just trying to kind of marry that up with what you've said because... Um, yeah, yeah, because those values, because those values sound, as you said, quite universal. So in a sense, if they're universal and everybody's accepting of them, then are, they're not really a differentiator of political leanings or anything, are they? Yeah, I, I guess they're more like principles, I think. And I don't think they are, they, hopefully, they shouldn't be too much of a differentiator of political principles. But I guess maybe... Maybe there's the difference would be if you have a, a conversation with someone who is quite strongly holds a particular perspective. Uh, let's take a realistic example of this. Let's say you have someone who is a strong believer in the free market, and they believe that the free market is the only way by which uh, economic problems can be resolved. And to some extent, that branches out into the way they think about all of the policy issues. Um, and hence the, the moniker neoliberal is often used for people that espouse that idea. Uh, to take it into your realm, uh, the NHS as an example, there's been a lot of debate around public-private partnerships, around uh, can we decentralise the organisational process for uh, the manufacturing and the production and the buying and selling of uh, drugs, etc., and all of these debates about do they bring more efficiency or less efficiency, you know, there's a belief system that believes that the market mechanism is the best way to deliver all of these things. And that's fairly distinctive. Uh, on the other side of that, there is a uh, strong belief that says, uh, no, these are public goods. These are uh, irrelevant of any other factor. We need to make sure they uh, remain within the public sector. Um, and anything like that, whether it's the National Rail, whether it's what was the National Rail, or whether it's National Health Service, um, all of these things should be brought within the, the public uh, sector, and therefore they should be owned, uh, controlled, administered by state. And both of those are quite strong ideopolitical positions that people can take. Um, if you're someone that believes that there are merits to either approach, you will be able to look at it from the point of view of either the effects, the impact of said policies, or the realistic ability of said policies to actually work according to the values and the criteria that spouts. Um, and you'd look at it accordingly. So you'd see that the level of inefficiency that we had in the rail system was monumental before the privatisation. You'd also see the failure of privatisation and doing things like regulating price and creating efficiency. So neither system is perfect or ideal, um, and they reach out for us assessing the approach and the consequences and deciding what is or isn't better. I guess the same with things like um, the National Health Service, that if you, you can believe in the need for a strong free market, but almost everybody, if you go to the most, you know, you only go to like neoconservative thinkers like Irving Crystal, they'll tell you that no, they do believe in the need for a welfare state um, because market failure, if you study economics, is a natural part of the economy. And so there is going to be some element of market failure happening uh, in sectors as a whole or within specific parts of the economy. So therefore, you're going to need some kind of net to protect and to guarantee the preservation of people. And We've had that uh, since the Second World War as being part of our provisions for um, both public health as a whole, so everybody has socialised um, health care, and also when necessary, we have a welfare state that looks after those people that fall through the failings of the system. So, so it's make, so it sounds sorry, sorry. Should I continue? People. Please, please continue. Yeah. No, no, it's fine. I was going on crazy. Yeah. No, no, no. So I was going to say that it sounds like the values that you're talking about are more civilizational, you know, about how the kind of um, how you view the world rather than how you want the world to be. 
Yeah, so I guess I think let's let's step back. I think if you speak to everybody, they would tell you that in principle they don't think people should die on the streets without food, clothing and shelter. Whether they're right of centre, left of centre, um, it's not really, you know, there's a caricature that only left-wing people are morally good and right-wing people are reprehensible and therefore right-wing people, you know, don't care if people die on the streets. Um, you know, that's the kind of caricature that's in a lot of popular discourse. Actually, it's just about a belief in how we can best organise that. Is that best organised by having a very successful economy, by having strong philanthropy, and by the state minimally interfering as and when necessary in order to ensure that doesn't happen? Or do you have a belief system which says the state is the means by which everything happens anyway? And therefore, it's not about having a successful economy. It's about ensuring that your large state runs the economy in order to succeed in ensuring those things don't happen. Now, they're the two kind of ends of that spectrum. And then in between there, there's going to be um, different perspectives and levels and you know points of view and I think from my perspective I think you know as it is the prophetic tradition the son of Adam has no better right than these three things the you know food um, clothes with which to cover his nakedness and a roof over his head um, these are if you like the the basic needs that people have and I think that's a quite a universal prophetic tradition that can inform the way we think about what the basic needs of any people are in a society necessities and needs um, and then everything on top of that is uh, to complete the way we live um, and that's kind of a core idea in economics yeah so it's, a, it's a, so it's a case of how to deliver that which you've already agreed upon as being uh, fundamental um, uh, rights and needs basically yeah so I think that there may be on the prescriptive side, there may be some people that will define a very specific way of doing so, irrelevant of consequences almost. So, you know, you have so, 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 hence the term that people who are ideologically pure, or for example, you know, they're doing things out of ideology. You know, when you hear commentators say, you know, people are doing this for an ideological reason because what they're yeah, the, they, the, the, the subtext is that they don't care what the result is, it's because they have a, a belief. So, whether that is uh, free market or whether that is socialist or whatever right right so they have a belief in the means which trumps even the ends yeah there's a bit yes. disparity between the you know the purpose behind these things and the means by which they're achieved and that is because of the insistence on uh, ideology where people will you know come up with half-baked ideas for the sake of it things that you know resonate with their um, their ideological beliefs, the people that they are reached out to, and so on. And you'll find this on all sides of the political spectrum. I mean, I've I've um, I've seen you uh, on social media being particularly critical of um, the kind of Corbynista faction of the Labour Party for this very reason. Am I, is that a accurate summation? Oh yeah, I think that that's that's yeah, that's a fairly accurate accurate description. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I remember being in uh, London Labour Party HQ on the night that Ed Miliband uh, lost the general election, and being surrounded by uh, friends of mine and the utter the utter dismay and sheer kind of sh surprise that you know within hours of you know it seemed like. There was a sure Labour government. Ed Miliband was bound to win. Cameron, by ten, you know, ten p.m., has, had almost resigned himself to defeat. And then, within two, three hours, that changed completely. And so there was this um, an added failure of, hold on, this was an election that they were supposed to win. How did they lose it? Um, and so you had this kind of like rediscovery of self happening amongst the Labour Party that had been happening since Blair, Brown, and Miliband, and they'd be moving, I guess, slightly further to the left. Um, gone from Blair's very centrist, uh, big state, large expenditure, uh, interventionist, left um, economic policy thinking, 
uh, to no, we need to now go back to more ide uh, economic uh, left ideas and idealism. And that started really uh, under Miliband. Um, his manifesto was not particularly different to the first Corbyn election manifesto. Um, and then you had that shift even further under Corbyn. There was a reaction. And that reaction wasn't particularly uh, rigorous intellectually. It was a reaction to what they had seen of the failures of Blair, uh, the, the, you know, rejection of uh, Brown and Miliband that pushed them to, to adopt this kind of, um, and I use this descriptively, not pejoratively, although it is, it is pejorative, to adopt um, a Stalinist uh, to lead the party of, um, you know, the left in the UK. And so you had in Corbyn someone who, as they say, never changed his political beliefs in his life. You know, as a lifelong socialist, um, as though that's a good thing, as though that was some kind of, he's a man of principle, although his principle here is Marxist, uh, Len not even Leninist, it's Marxist-Stalinism. Someone who, you know, was upset at the end of the um, destruction of the USSR and wrote, wrote bemoaning it for the Morning Star, a Stalinist communist paper. Uh, and even last, even two, three days ago, he did a video saying how much we need to support it. And this is a paper that celebrated uh, Bashar Assad's utter decimation of the opposition and the Syrian people, hundreds of thousands of people killed, millions dispersed, and they were pleased that Assad was winning. Um, and this is a man who doubted the, uh, the genocidal nature of Milosevic and even put in parliament measures to say this is not the case and we should not intervene in Kosovo in order to stop taking place because he has a world view and that world view was everything western is bad they're imperialists everything other than western is good and so to be in the right camp of politics you had to be in the anti-imperialist camp and that manifests itself in things like supporting the Assad regime it manifests itself in things like you know downplaying the Bosnian genocide and even denying Milosevic's genocidal nature it plays itself into things by making, you know, reactionary economic ideals and ideas, things which if you stop and think about it for more than five or six seconds, you'd be, you'd see the idiocy of those ideas. Like, for example, giving everybody internet broadband across the country for free, whether rich, whether middle class, whether uh, more than able to afford it or not, effectively subsidizing from mass taxes of the public, which included the lower levels of income, a resource for everybody, um, including those that were more than wealthy enough to afford it themselves, i.e. subsidizing the middle and upper classes by the tax of the entire society, mm. which most people saw as utterly ridiculous and just a play to the crowd, um, a idea based upon big state and pseudo-communism. Uh, one of the slogans of some of the Corbynistas was, uh, was it luxury communism. And that type of nonsense, which really was rejected in mass, both as an ideology and him as a personality, were rejected on mass. Um, if I may ask, you've mentioned that you're not affiliated to any political party. How come then you were in Labour HQ? in 2015, when the results were coming in? Um, I was looking forward to a Miliband government, I guess. But, I mean, I would... I mean, you know, pardon me if I'm wrong here, but I don't suppose you can just turn up to Labour HQ. <laughs> I would assume I that you'd have to have some to, credentials to get in. You have to know the people, I guess. And I went with a whole load of other people who were strong Labour supporters. Uh, an activist and left-wing activist. And so... Because uh, so I don't have to have an ideological persuasion to say I support this party uh, all the time, irrelevant whether it's right or wrong. Okay. Uh, so so, you're, so, right so, so you're, you're not a fan of the uh, of tribal politics? No, I think it's, it's uh, in two respects, both in terms of how people who shift on, who 
lean towards their their party, whether right or wrong, or people who have now, I think tribalism is even worse, where it's not just your party, but you're kind of like your tribe in the sense of it's your, how, to, how best to describe it? It's your wing of the party. It's almost like your wing of the party. It's not just the it's party. It's like an identity now. It's if you're of, if you're a good person, you are part of this tribe. And it's, a, it's part of all the good people belong to this. So it's so val- in making value judgments based on your uh, political ideas. Political ideals. And some of these things are, you know, if you're on the wrong side of the trans debate, if you're on the wrong side of, um, you know, and, and, you know the, current, the current big discussions about race and uh, Black Lives Matter, then you, you must automatically uh, be morally repugnant. And there's no attempt to try to understand uh, where other people are coming from on the other sides of these debates and discussions. And they must inherently be bad people if they disagree with you. So, so I mean, mean, from... from... Labelling people as Marxist, communist, without actually investigating their ideas, or labelling people as right-wing fascists just because they disagree with your very specific standpoint on a particular issue. I mean, it sounds like you're making a a searing critique of... uh the woke culture that we're in uh, that some people like to use the term. I mean, I'm not a a particular fan of the phrase, but I understand the concept that people are railing against. Um, I think it's both sides of this, isn't it? Yeah. I think one of the big issues is that um, there is the whole, uh, you know, if you're not part of the woke side of the debate, then you are, you know, you must be regressive. And there is the other side of this, which is that if you are remotely critical of our status quo, you must be some kind of rebellious Marxist who would try to undermine democracy. Do you there see? Do do you see this kind of um, behavior on the right wing in the same way? Like you've talked about Corbyn, do you see the same kind of behavior? Yeah, you have both sides of it, and I think you'll find that the the factions, um, you know, a lot of this. If you are critical of, I mean, this this takes some of this like really di- uh, the big debate right now about bringing down statues. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's interesting to see how people where do the where do the crumbs fall? Where do people fall on all of this? So for some people, it's inherently you know all statues are bad. They are um, there to represent status quo. Um, and there'll be some way of finding out why they're bad. Either they're racist, they're slave owners, they are all capitalism, they uh, didn't change, you know, or whatever it may be. There will be some kind of justification to provide a negative view about them, whether it's Gandhi, whether it's um, Cromwell, Lincoln, um, whoever it may be. Yeah. Um... Uh, and on the other side of that is that anyone doing this is a Maoist communist who is trying to get rid of history and what you know in the same way as the the communists and Leninists used to always do, which was they would change history, they would remove people and icons and institutions, statues, any mark to remake history and reshape it in the image that they wanted to portray, which was a characteristic of Lenin and the Maoist movement and the communists who would literally erase people from history. And so you've got this um, polarised debate and discussion about this, and there's no common ground to have a conversation. So you can't even start by talking about, well, what are these figures? Who are these people? What's the good and the bad about them? Uh, Churchill's a good example of this. Of course, everybody in this country, he was Britain's greatest Britain, not because he had policies which led to three million people being killed in the Bengal, but because his policies led to the military defeating the Nazis alongside the Allies. Um, And that is obviously a naturally divisive discussion, but also a complicated figure. Uh, Not just complicated in the sense that he said a few bad things about Arabs. It's not a minor thing. It's a horrific thing, as well as a major victory, which is part, part of this country's heritage, that people feel some kind of affinity and... They don't wish to have um, a negative slur associated with. And so being able to sit down and actually explain that in a way that 
tries to bring together the way that different people from different sides of this argument can understand it and empathize with each other's points of view is lost in the noise that comes from the uh, small c conservative protectionist uh, right and I guess the uh, and I use radical minor pejorative sense it's perfectly fine to be radical but the radical left I mean I mean I think the, the there seems to be a um, when it comes to the statues, since we're talking about it, it's, it, people seem to have just have, have forgotten that these are statues of human beings, and human beings are by nature complicated, and there are good and bad aspects to them. And trying to paint everything in one way or the other is well, it's it. I mean, to me, from my personal perspective, it's you know I think both sides are stupid. You know, sorry, <laughs> you know I'm going to so that is a pejorative statement. I know, but I mean it's. Kind of, you know, you've got reactionary and you've got revolutionary and both have missed the point. And whilst I agree that maybe uh, having statues of people who are slave owners or people who, you know, um, enforced a type of apartheid, like, for example, with Cecil Rhodes, you know, those are things which are objectionable. Um, you know, some things are just part of your history and part of who you are as a nation. Churchill... Uh, I'm not a fan of, but ultimately he was right about the rise of uh, Germany and he enacted policies which ensured Britain's survival during what seemed to be, you know, quite dark days, you know, dark days and an existential threat to uh, the British polity. Um, well, no, well, it, was, it, was, it, it was more than that, true, I agree, but existential threat to black people, existential threat to the Jewish people, existential threat to um, every other civilization and culture that existed on the face of the earth. Yeah, and true, so, true. But I don't think Winston Churchill was thinking about the black people or the Jewish people, was he? He was thinking about the British. No, I don't think he was. I don't think he was about um, recognizing fascism as only being something that's very anti-British. Because if he was just thinking about the British and British interest, then he would have continued along the lines of appeasement. Mm, okay. Fair point, fair point, fair point. Um, just moving the uh, discussion away from uh, statues, um, we've talked a bit about the left, uh, but I would like to point a uh, question to you, which is that the Conservative Party no longer exists. It exists in name only. And that the uh, recent coronavirus epidemic the response to that and the kind of public spending and populism that we've seen from Boris Johnson don't you know don't show any kind of ideological conservatism am i completely wrong is there a grain of truth or as per usual it's complicated no i think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying i think if we step back um, in the big, you know, we went through a phase, and I hate to talk about this, but we went through a phase of debating Brexit for what seemed like um, eternity. Yeah. Um, and in some respects, Corona came and saved us from Brexit um, and the debating around it. But one of the most interesting surveys was what would you sacrifice amongst the Conservative and Unionist Party? And it turned out that English Conservative members of the party were prepared to sacrifice Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales, if necessary, um, from England uh, in order to have independence, uh, so-called independence, from the European Union. Yeah, I'd, I'd seen that survey, so and it reminded me of... Party. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd, I'd, I'd seen that survey, I remember when that came out, and it reminded me of a episode of Question Time... From I think twenty fourteen. I think twenty fourteen was the Scottish independence referendum. Am I correct? Sounds about right. Yeah. And the a old leader of the SNP, who uh, Jim Sillers, who had gone more to the left. I think I don't know if he ever founded his own party or what happened. But um, I remember he was on the panel, and they were discussing Scottish independence and whatever. And he said something which. Uh, at the time, you know, I just kind of 
just heard but you know when I saw this survey it really kind of thought came to me as being something prescient that maybe what we're witnessing is the end of the English Empire um, and you know the uh, the English are wanting their rights of self-determination as English not as British but as English and if therefore they are prepared to let Scotland they've already let I, you know, the majority of Ireland uh, go. Um, they've got devolved governments in the other three uh, nations. You know, there's been, there was an independence referendum which um, uh, people say, oh, it was conclusive. Well, 55-45 doesn't sound conclusive to me. I mean, I mean, it's definitely a majority, but I mean, it's not conclusive. Um, um, so in that sense, is really the Conservative Party now just, I don't know, the English National Party? So I think it's really interesting to look at that if the base of the party no longer sees itself as the Conservative and Unionist Party, but as a party which uh, is basically, re you know, Scotland has, you know, more or less comprehensively rejected the Labour Party, it's no longer exists there. Um, it's the, Labour, the, Tory part, the Tories and the Conservative Party, um, do not really have a hold there anymore. Uh, England still is the majority uh, stakeholding uh, nation within the British parliamentary system. Uh, the result is that the Conservatives, who have always been the party of England um, as a whole, generally speaking, um, are focused on their, if you like, their um, their, their home their home ground. And in fact, in the last election, managed to expand into territories which were in the red zone, which have always been traditional Labour areas. Um, the so-called Red Wall. Uh, yeah, because essentially those pieces have, have never had any affinity with the Conservative Party at all, but they could not see themselves voting for this Labour Party. Um, and so you had uh, this remarkable situation where they, at least for temporarily, they seem to have taken over those, those areas as well. But essentially, they see themselves as being the the party of England, and so that has shifted in the political landscape. It shifted in the identity of the Conservative Party membership, and so what that means is the leadership may well have to shift itself to fit that paradigm. And so, if you wanted to gain leadership in the party, you needed to satisfy that reaction within the party. So the right wing of the party, which is essentially dominates the party, um, would need to be satisfied in order to gain leadership within it. And so what you saw was the likes of someone like Boris Johnson, who's actually not particularly ideological, not particularly um, right wing, in fact. You know, if you look at his rhetoric, as the London mayor, um, was very kind of small and liberal. And in fact, even, you know, ironically looking at the way they've handled the situation with the coronavirus, it was, he was very reluctant to start making impositions on individual liberty and civic, you know, restrictions on civic life, for which he was criticised for not being strong enough, not being forthright enough, not being direct enough with state sanction for people violating the lockdown and so on for a long time. Um, and so I think that attitude is met with the situation. And so what you have is the leadership of the party playing to the gallery of the Conservative Party um, and therefore rhetoric, which is very different to the actual policies and practices. Um, so you have this kind of... Uh, very strange, um, not quite English nationalism, because it's not identifiably English national, but it's a break away from unionism as a political idea. And yeah. so you have that has taken place within the party, and you can see where there are very, very odd reactionary calls uh, where people are talking about white nationalism, white interest groups, um, the legitimacy of 
uh, ethno-nationalistic politics in a wide context. I mean, there an article by um, in the Financial Times written by David Goodhart. You know, if you can have black nationalism, why can't you have white nationalism? Um, without, you know, a failure to understand that you're talking about the mainstream dominant um, ethnicity in society, which is already well established in society, via the where people are reacting to that and therefore they are acting on behalf of a persecuted slash um, less well integrated slash uh, interest group almost or ethnicity rather than um, advocating for the dominance of black people over society, which is essentially what it would mean if you're talking about white nationalist interests and so on. So there is that spectrum of uh, identity politics, which was championed by the left in the post, uh, post postmodern society. And then when it's embraced by the right, it creates this kind of populism. Um, and, you know, this polarization that takes place where we have all these arguments, debates, conflicts in society and loss of center ground. So when you have that loss of center ground, you're going to have that manifest in the political medium. So you saw that with the Labour Party splitting itself between the Stalinists and the centre-left and even the left wing. You saw that with the Conservative Party between, you know, the breakup of the unionism and the unionists and the liberal right or centre-right uh, Cameronite, if you like. One nation uh, conservatism is as some Versus a kind of reactionary conservatism and you see that tension within the party and outside uh, outside of the party in right-wing circles. And but so there is no one holding the centre ground anymore. So, isn't it then, do you not find it slightly ironic then that at least in, uh, at least in, if not means, but ends, this is probably the most socialist government we've had since uh, Nye Bevan and Clement Attlee. You know, with furloughing, you know, the government basically paying salaries of people employed by private companies, etc. during the coronavirus epidemic. You know, yeah, massive borrowing, so. quantitative easing. So, you know, you've actually... Which makes me... um, It makes me go back, actually, the idea to... Uh, the the nineteen thirties and the rise of uh, national socialism, i.e., Nazism, in the in Germany. You know, everybody thinks of them as right wing and authoritarian, and they were right wing fascists, obviously. But the policies that they did were socialist, full employment, for example. You know, um, and things like that. And, and, you know, the clues in the name, National Socialist. Um, are we heading... I mean, I'm not saying that the Conservative Party is, you know, Nazis. That that would be... That's a bit ridiculous. But what I'm trying to say is that do you find that we are now getting that kind of uh, strange marriage of the two within this pre present Conservative Party? Or this present um, government? No, I, I think that uh, it's not quite a right reading of what's happening. So national socialism is very specific. Um, it wasn't just identity nationalistic uh, and then socialist in ideology. Um, it's a uh, um, set of economic policies. It's socialist in ideology, which is totalitarian, which is we will control every aspect of your society, mm -hmm. and nationalist premises, so that there is an ideal of the blonde, blue-eyed, ideal German and everybody else is inferior. So that's, a, you know, coupled with totalitarianism and power. And so that's what fascism actually is. And so nationalist socialism has the totalitarianism of socialism with the supremacism of nationalist uh, ideology, which looks down and sees everything else as inferior to it. That's what Nazism was. And this is very different. The idea of like you have slightly more left policies of expenditure, of quantitative easing, is in the spectrum of our modern economy. So Britain is not a 
right-wing free market economy, nor is it a socialist economy. Anyone who's done like very basic economics will tell you it's a mixed economy. Yeah. We are. Uh, we do not plan centrally for every part of our economy. We have some planning for economic expenditure. We have a free market, which in order to be successful, um, needs to have uh, the parameters for um, investment, for successful growth, for high taxation, or to have a, the ability to be able to have a welfare state and pay off our debts and our expenditures. Um, in a situation like the one that we have currently, where we need to support the economy, the Bank of England will do so, as it has done, and the state will borrow in order to do so. And that relationship exists uh, in massively disproportionate, exceptional circumstances that the government has undertaken. But it's still well within the spectrum of UK politics, whether centre-right or centre-left. Because actually, when dealing with a mixed economy, all of those things are plausible and possible. And the people that don't kind of understand that and are making this type of a discussion about our politics, and there are people out there making this type of commentary, they probably don't really know much about economics or politics or policy or ideas. Because, I mean, I mean, if, if, if I was to say, you know, that the ultimate expression of national socialism was the Nazi party, as we, you know, um, then, because, I mean, I'm just picking up on the threads that you've mentioned. You've mentioned, you know, the fact that we're a mixed economy. You mentioned the fact that there's a tendency towards uh, white nationalism, English nationalism. There's a lack of unionism. So there's already an ethno-nationalist uh, element there going. Uh, the fact that these extraordinary circumstances have meant that there's been massive government intervention. Okay, it's not Nazism, obviously. But no, 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 okay, no. can you not see that there are wait, there are wait, some parallels? Wait, wait, wait. No, that's stupid. Anyone that says that is an absolute ignoramus. Okay. It's retarded. It's not even worth it. Okay, go on then. Okay then. So um. No, no, really. It's, it's like saying, "Prove to me you're not a, a woman." But you can say it's self-evident. Yeah. But I know I want a definition. I want a debate and a discussion about it. I want you to try and. No, it's ridiculous. People that say that are ignorant of history. They're ignorant of ideas. They're ignorant of current politics. They're ignorant of our economy. They're ignorant of economic policy. They're ignorant of what nationalism means, and they know what fascism means. There's so much there of compounded ignorance to engage with. It's impossible to have a conversation with that kind of a person because mm. they don't share reality with you. In order to have a discussion about something, you have to have common reference points. And the most basic common reference point is a shared reality about which you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Anyone that is that deluded and delusional, you can't even have a conversation with, and so you shouldn't try. Okay. Because it will be impossible. There's okay. so much you have to educate them about. Okay. So and so you will just be there forever trying to educate them. Okay. Which which is the delusion? No, the whole thing. So the whole thing. So I've just said it. I've just said it. Go back and okay. in the recording to it again. There's no point in repeating it. Okay. No, no, that, that, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. I'm just, uh, you know, as I said, you know, we're just spitballing, talking, you know, because uh, we, yeah. we we are in we are in strange times, and yeah. uh, you know these the, you know these aren't uh, normal uh, circumstances with coronavirus, and um, you know, as I said, you know, it has led to some things which you wouldn't expect a conservative government to do um and on the other hand um uh you know there are issues going on about you know as you say black lives matter statues or as um i don't know if you follow the football but uh, yesterday or the day before at the man city uh burnley game there was a plane that flew that went saying white lives matter you know yeah. um so, uh... well, there are amazing things that are happening in society that we've seen. And I think it's true to say that there is infiltration of nationalism, racism, Islamophobia within, within our society at a large level. Mm -hmm. The result of that is that it's going to manifest itself in our political parties, both right of centre and left of centre, right wing and left wing. So it's unsurprising, as an example, that we had recently a Conservative Party activist say to Naz Shah, 
all back to your own country as though she is from other than Bradford where she was born and brought up. Yeah. Um, it's a straight racist comment. There's no two ways about that. That is racism. Yeah. Well, that's, so, uh, well. I mean, the, the, it's been it's been normalized, hasn't it? The the rhetoric of what, of what was the far right of the nineties has now been completely and utterly normalized. Yeah. Um, I would say I'd go, go back even further. The far right of the eighties, the nineties is when we saw this kind of diminish, um, and you saw the growth of a uh, a liberal multicultural ideal uh, through the nineties and the beginning of the noughties, uh, and it started to become challenged again in the later part of the noughties. And we have what's going now. So, outside of the two major parties, do you feel that any of the other parties have anything really to add to the discussion? Considering we have a first-past-the-post system. Sorry, I, I didn't quite understand that. So, we, we, we've talked a bit about uh, the left, I you know, Labour, in a sense. We've talked a bit about we've we've talked a little bit about conserv the conservatives stroke the right. There are other parties in our political system like the Liberal Democrats, the Greens, uh, Plaid Cymru, Scottish National Party. We have a electoral system, a nationwide electoral system, which is first past the post. So a MP can be elected without having a true majority in his own constituency as long as he has the most amount of votes. Do the other smaller parties then really have much to add to the political discourse? Is my so, question. I think, I think they do, but I think there's two different things about how you influence politics. One is about making your ideas go mainstream, and the other is by... Um, gaining influence within structures of politics and society. And these include mainstream parties, institutions, and influential positions within society. Um, both of which are the means by which people make their, their politics main, uh, influential and create change. And I think both of those things are still options. So, um, uh, but, but, but I mean, uh, from, okay, uh, again, I may have uh, misunderstood, but then from what you're saying from that, that time seems that the only way to affect change would to be to join or be affiliated or even just hold views of the two major parties that we have rather than the Liberal Democrats or the Greens or the SNP. I mean, okay, the SNP is slightly different in Scotland. We'll keep the SNP and Plaid Cymru out of it. But, you know, the, the other na uh, national parties. Because they are not really in a position of uh, power and they're not really in a play, place to affect any change. I think you missed what I said, but you didn't understand it. Okay, as I said, I may have misunderstood. So, so you don't become influential by becoming the mainstream party. You become influential in a situation like this by making your ideas go mainstream. So why are the Lib Dems no longer influential? Because the essence of the party's political ideals are what we live in. We live in a liberal democracy. Yeah. You're no longer arguing for suffrage for men and women, for middle, upper, lower, uh, middle, lower classes and upper classes, for equality of legislation between men and women, for rights for minorities and individuals and sexual liberty. All those things are mainstream ideas to the extent they're not only manifest in legislation and our system and our constitutional laws, they are manifest as criteria by which we weigh up other laws. So you can't bring about laws which are discriminatory because they'll be shot down by a higher court. You can't bring about laws which are undemocratic because they'll be shot down by our constitutional laws. You can't bring about legislative changes which change the constitution in a way that are unrecognisable because the House of Lords won't even pass it because it's a belief that's implicit that underpins everything that we do. And so... Those values have become mainstreamed. As a result of that, you inherently then become less influential because your value system has become adopted by other parties. Yeah, yeah. Applied by a group. And so you're no longer radically influential. So that's one way of doing it. You make environmentalism is a good example of this. It's not surprising that Cameron, you know, was seen as a very strong environmentalist candidate. You know, this was 
one of the things that he's sold himself on. Yeah, um, the Green yeah, Conservative, I remember. Because it's no longer a left-wing fringe cause, it's a mainstream idea, both in the mainstream science, mainstream politics, and the two mainstream political parties. Um, why are the suffragettes less influential? Yes, there's a women's uh, political party, women's equality as a political party that exists in order to revive aspects of this policies and address issues such as you know, the disparity of pay, um, depending on where you stand, or whether that's to do with consequences, or it's to do with the values, or it's to do with discrimination, whether it's to do with choices in the system. Uh, but essentially, those parties use, arise, you know, or legislation that affects them specifically, the lack of, you know, the failure of our judicial system to be able to uh, convict rapists. There's a whole array of issues. But those issues are still. They're not necessarily peripheral, but they are still not taken on board by mainstream parties as being centering parts of their legislation. Sometimes they are, and sometimes, like in the last election, they will support parties that take up some of those issues, like they did with supporters in the Lib Dems who took up some of these issues in their manifesto, um, you know, etc. Mm-hmm. Okay. So All right. If you if you're able to do that, and the other way is by embedding yourself in the institutions of society so it's unsurprising that most of our universities and academia are left-wing you know the uh, institutions in our society can often be out of touch with the sentiment of the populace but they there is this you know and i think this is one of the things that's happened recently there's a polarization between uh, our academic intelligentsia the liberal bubble etc and the masses which is what we found in the brexit vote yeah i don't really yeah. talk about that And I think you can see where you can be conversely influential in that way that you gain institutions, but you don't gain the masses. Or you can do the opposite, where you gain the masses and you gain the institutions. Or you gain, you know, mainstream. Over a long period of time, you go from not being the party of the people to being the party of the people, which is what um, the new Labour Party turned out to be, and the Lib Dems lost their, the Liberals lost their influence. Mm. So there's all sorts of things in the long term uh, but also all sorts of things in the short term and all sorts of things with political campaigning. Mm, okay. Uh, just one final question before we wrap up, because uh, we're rapidly hitting the hour mark and uh, I can imagine, um, imagine our listeners are getting up to, you know, uh, thinking, you know, what the hell are these two guys blabbering on about? Um, I understand that you are a, uh, a religious Muslim. Um, I also know that, and you've mentioned about how you have uh, done work against extremism and against uh, Islamophobia as well. Do you feel that Islam informs your politics at all? Um, and, I, and I'm going to have to press you and say that you've only got about two minutes to give this answer. Great. Um, of course, your values are informed by your religious perspective, your judgments of morality, your notions of right and wrong. And they shape your attitudes towards things, even if they don't shape the precise details of the means by which you wish to visualize and bring them about into reality. And I think that's a big discussion for Muslims to have in our current circumstances, that in the era of re-questioning modernity and the conclusions that modernity arrived at about religion and politics and governance and morality and science, when all of this is up for debate and discussion, we need to clearly articulate where we stand on each of those beliefs and values. And what does that mean then? And therefore, what does that translate into in the political sense? And I think this is why, because Muslims have different attitudes towards beliefs, towards morality or moral questions, towards religious rulings, towards policy priorities, as a result of that, their politics is going to be very, very diverse and it's not going to be uniform. And it never was, it never will be, and never has been. And therefore, what that means in real terms is some people will be more small C conservative, some people will be smaller liberal, and some people may be small P progressives, and they will align their politics with political parties, factions, and streams within those currents. It won't be ideal, but it'll be possible. Okay. And uh, we've only got about a minute or so left. Um, How is that different to... Uh, Islamism, what you've what you've described. Well, Islamism is a very specific ideological belief that's arisen as a result of the last hundred years or so. Um, 
in the, if you like, as a reaction to colonialism, you had the, and modernity, you had the creation of the nation state, you had the expansion of imperial powers and colonization. Therefore, as a result of that, we had this anti-colonial point of view, you had this embracement of modernity in the modern state, and you had the need for um, countering those things, and you had the spread of ideologies of communism, socialism, and capitalism, or free market, free market neoliberalism, if you like, as ideals for society. And so you had this reaction within Muslim communities globally, um, with almost a mirror. So how is that um, different to Islamism? So Islamism is a reaction to both modernity and colonialism. So you have within modernity the whole big concept of modern ideologies, whether it's capitalism, communism, you have the nation state, this executive judicial legislature, you have colonialism and imperialism, which expanded across the entirety of the Muslim world. And you have this reaction within Muslimdom and the Muslim communities, which mirror reflected uh, modernity and colonialism. So you have this anti-colonial project, you have this independence and liberating view, you have this um, completely understandable reaction to it. And then you have this ideological version of Islam, which is Islam is an ideology the same as communism and socialism and capitalism and so on. So you have this totalitarian tendency within it that seeks to bring about a political ideological change. It then takes from Islam the language of Islam in order to bring that about. So the language of a khilaf or the caliphate, the language of ahkam sharia, the language of jihad as the expansionist concept of jihad al-talab in order to re-establish a global Islamic caliphate in order to take over the world in an expansionist state. And this concept of the Islamic state arises, which is ahistoric, has no precedence in Islam, and uh, is no longer um, the notion of uh, Muslims living in a communion together. Uh, it's no longer one that respects the diversity of Islamic tradition. No longer one that brings communities of Muslims and outside of Muslims together in different legal laws and settings. It's no longer a monocultural or um, no longer a, a monocratic society as it was in imperial times. It's now a totalitarian system which imposes its will. It's no longer one that sees um, jihad as a means of protecting communities and civilizations and allowing people the free expression of their faith and belief, but it's a means of expanding the totalitarian state globally across the earth. Its notion of sharia is the state law which is imposed over society, not the, not the fiqh of the madhahib where people live with their different ikhtilafat. Um, its judiciary is there to impose that, and its conception of Islam is rigidly ideological, um, very simplistic, and very totalitarian, and sounds more like Ayn Volk, Ayn Reich, and Führer, one caliph, one ummah, you know, one state, yeah. that it doesn't really anything to do with our tradition and our traditional concepts of governance and rule and madhahib and fiqh and uh, the co traditional conception of jihad. And so it goes from uh, that to and having ideological movements, political parties, uh, factional ideological movements that have no basis in Islamic history, Fatawa that have no foundations, such as the legitimacy of taking civilian life, suicide bombing, um, all such mechanisms, a legitimacy of any type of rebellion against any ruler that doesn't fit their very specific ideological persuasion. That is not Islam. It is taken from Islam, it is taken from maybe some Islamic rulings even, but the winner of this application and its version is completely antithetical to classical Islam. So, what was the, uh, um, I mean, I suppose this is a massive topic in itself, but what was the classic, classical Islamic governance model? Or was there not, why was there, was there, what, or wasn't there one and it was just a bunch of uh, different, uh, uh, you know, different emirates or different states or whatever you may, wherever you want to put it? I think that's a podcast in itself. Yes, I know. I, I, I did. It, 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 it did. Uh, it did occur to me that that would be an episode in itself. Um, but no, yeah, but, but 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 you've been quite clear. You've been quite clear that the concept of a Islamic state, uh, 
um, is not something that's rooted in Islamic tradition and not rooted in prophetic tradition. Um, so um, I think uh, at least we're, we're, we're clear up, uh, upon uh, that point. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to end it there. Thank you very much, uh, Rashad. It's been enlightening as usual. It's been uh, intellectually uh, stimulating. Um, I suppose I can't uh, uh, leave you by say, uh, before saying if there was an election tomorrow, which yep. uh, party would you vote for? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I hope that uh, CARE is able to rid itself with the Labour Party so far of the nasty elements, the racist nasty elements of Tatanadeh was still there, but he's failed to show that leadership so far. Um, I heard a fantastic uh, interview with Lisa Nandy um, yesterday uh, on the Concordia Forum and a discussion that she gave and I would happily support her as foreign minister, maybe even the future prime minister. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just not too sure yet as to uh, whether I would vote for any of these parties. Yeah, I was going to say, could you ever envisage a situation when you would vote Conservative? Um, I think it's very difficult, but uh, let's just say I think I'm yet to decide on a party that I think I feel happy as representing what I see as something positive. Um, uh, I know it's a private question. Who did you vote for in the last election? You're right, it is a private question. <laughs> okay, that's fine. You don't have to answer. Fair enough. We can leave that for <laughs> we, 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 we can leave that hanging and uh, uh, the, uh, the, li- the listeners can fill in the blanks. Um, thank you very much, Rashad. Thank you very much for your time. Um, and um, if anybody would uh, like to... Uh, you know, a chat with you. Are you? I I am aware you're uh, on um, Twitter. Um, I know you're on Facebook as well, and obviously there is the Institute of Strategic Dialogue website. I've seen some of your papers. It's very good work. I must say, I'm very particularly was very impressed with the the work on uh, the rise of Hindu nationalism in India, and Islamophobia. Um, there it's very worrying times as someone of myself being someone of Indian heritage um, it's you know I frankly I just worry for my family um, so that um, are those the main avenues where anybody from wants to touch uh, get in touch with you those are the places yeah Twitter Facebook uh, contact us via the website um, happy to engage with anybody who wants to excellent excellent all right thanks a lot Rashad and uh, uh, enjoy the sunshine. Take care.